Welcome to 22 Motivational Minutes with Marlo, where I help passionate entrepreneurs condense an hour of business research into 22 minutes of powerful conversations filled with knowledge, stories, and advice to help you achieve your one-year goal in 90 days. From national stages to your earbuds, I'm here to tell you that it's possible to have a profitable and sustainable business without the fear of overwhelm and uncertainty that comes with being an entrepreneur. It's all mojo and none of the fluff. It's time to get motivated in 22 minutes. All right. Welcome back to this week's episode of 22 Motivational Minutes with Marlo. And this is our brand performance podcast. Now, this episode this week is pretty exciting because we have Steve Glaskvi. Help me. Glaveski. Glaveski. Steve Glaveski. Oh my gosh. I found Steve with an article that he wrote for the Harvard Business Journal and it's Productivity Skills to Help You Gain Time Back. We will obviously be putting a link to that article in the show notes. But Steve, I just so welcome you to this episode and uh, can't wait for our audience to, to learn from you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Marlo. I'm really excited to be here. Yes, yes. So, you know, we, um, let me give some insight too. You know, you are on a mission to unlock the latent potential of organizations and people to create more impact for humanity and lead more fulfilling lives. You are the, the CEO and the co-founder of Collective Campus, which is a corporate innovation and startup accelerator based out of Melbourne, Australia, and you multiple writings of your books. And so I want to dig in. And when we talk about time, because we only have such a short period on this episode, where would you like to take our audience, Steve? I'll kind of let you take the lead on that. Oh, well, time is perhaps one of the most poorly looked after assets, if you will, that we have, because maybe I'll, I'll start with a quote from Seneca, one of my favorite Roman philosophers, who basically said that people are frugal when it comes to guarding their personal property and their money, but not so much their time, which is the one thing it is actually right to be stingy with, because time, unlike money, once you spend it, you cannot get it back. Um, but for some reason, we have this culture where it's all about saying yes to all sorts of requests on your time, staying back late at the office, or nowadays staying back late at your kitchen table, and ultimately not investing in other aspects of life. And I think if you were to ask someone who religiously works, say, until 9 p.m., despite the fact that their uh, contract says you're knocking off at 5 p.m., and you said, well, what's your hourly rate? They might say, well, $100 an hour. And if you ask them, well, would you pay your boss $400 to leave at 5 p.m.? Oh, definitely not. You, you say your hourly rate is worth $100 an hour, but clearly you don't value your time the same way as money. So, and and this, this transcends everything we do, work, personal life, everything else, you know, whether you're spending extra hours at the office or spending extra hours in front of the television, just binge watching Netflix every single night of the week, these can both have a you know, deleterious downstream effect on your, on your health, on your personal relationships, and on your experience of life. What got you involved and so interested in the value of time? And I know, you know, I look at that lens too and see, you know, time is currency and all of the principles behind it. And I know that you share that same essence and vibe around it, but is there like a specific experience or an example that our audience can understand better from you around time? Of course. Of course. So, you mentioned the Harvard Business Review article. So prior to that, I wrote an article called The Case for the Six-Hour Workday, uh, which was inspired by a six-hour workday experiment we ran at my team uh, at Collective Campus. Now, that experiment came about because having spent almost a decade in the corporate world working for investment banks and management consultancies, when I founded 
collective campus, when I got into the entrepreneurial game, I found that I was just anchoring to the past in terms of culture that I was building. And I felt that I needed to quote unquote, set a good example for my team by staying back late, even though most days I was pretty much done by 3 p.m. But the consequence of this is that by the time I would get home, be it 7, 8 p.m. in the evening, there'd be little time for anything else. Little time to invest in personal relationships, to socialize, to go out and surf, which is something I love to do, unless I wanted to get eaten by a, a shark at dusk. And I had to just ask myself the question, like, is there a better way? Um, what if we trialed a shorter workday? And the thing that happens when you do that, it's Parkinson's law. You know, give yourself less time to do something, you do it in less time. It acts as a forcing function. So for us, it forced us to automate rudimentary tasks. It forced us to outsource things that couldn't be automated. It forced us to apply the 80-20 principle and focus in on those high-level activities. It forced us to do away with time-wasting and and stuff that we'd done just because we'd always done it, even though it wasn't valuable. And that included a hell of a lot of meetings. And most importantly, I think, it forced us to cultivate the flow state. Um, Rather than bouncing between screens all day, between conversations, cultivating the ability to sit still and focus on one thing for extended periods of time, as uh, the psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi suggested, you know, that not only is a more fulfilling place to work, but we're up to five times more productive when we do that. And when you do that, when you do cultivate the flow state, it turns out that you can only really do that for about four hours a day. And then you hit the point of diminishing returns, which reminds me of Forrest Gump. You know, there's this classic scene where he's playing uh, college football he gets the ball. Initially, he's running the wrong way and his coaches are all saying, no, 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 the other way, the other way. So he turns around, starts running. He's super fast, gets to the end zone, scores the touchdown, but just keeps on running right into the, the change rooms. He takes out a member of the marching band on his way in. And that's how we approach a lot of our work. We might get into flow. We might do some awesome work for four hours, but we'll sit at our desks for another five or six hours and be absolutely exhausted come the end of the day despite the additional five or six hours, not really creating that much additional value. That experiment ran, worked really well. Uh, We've been running, I wouldn't say we run a six hour workday anymore. It's more so a no hour workday. Like you work the hours that are required to get your stuff done. So as entrepreneurs, I mean, what you're saying is like just really clarity of what, what are those tasks that really need to go to the finish line with, and then just jump in, get them done, not worry about the time, you know, that it takes. I believe in the four-day work week, right? So 10 years ago mm-hmm. when I launched my brand, my business plan was a four-day work week. And I only have 72 hours of production. So the money is made in literally three days or 72 hours. And so when you give yourself that rhythm, right? And that, that flow in your business, what do you find to be the greatest asset when we do that for ourselves as entrepreneurs and we make those decisions, we have that level of clarity with our time? How does that really connect into our flow? How does it connect into our flow? I think when you sit down to your work in the morning, uh, knowing what you're working on and doing it in a way where you know, you, it ultimately forces you to just get started. I mean, Isaac Newton, his laws of motion found that an object in motion stays in motion unless uh, disturbed by a, a force, an unbalanced force, which ultimately means that once you get started on a task, it's so much easier to keep going. So if I'm writing a 1,000-word article and I know that I'm only going to be in the office for five hours today, well, I'm not going to sit there and check LinkedIn and Twitter and email and try to get through the holy grail of inbox zero, which really means we're 
better at responding to other people's demands on our time than focusing on our own priorities, I'm just going to get started on that task. And so if it's a thousand word article, committing to the first 100 words, even though it might seem like a Herculean task when you sit down and you're staring at that blank canvas, essentially, once you write the first 100 words, it's so much easier to keep going. I think this also transcends other things too. For example, during the pandemic, screen time has gone up something like 12 hours a day for the average person in the West, which is insane. Uh, people are reading less physical books, uh, which isn't great for me, seeing as I just released one a couple of months ago. But ultimately, if you find yourself in that state where you're just binging Netflix every day and you want to read a book, you know it's good for you, you apply the same uh, theory. So commit to reading one page, and it's so much easier than to just read the rest of the chapter. Um, so yeah, in terms of connecting with that flow, that's part of it. Part of it is also you know, getting rid of all those things that can disturb your flow. Because every time you get, say you're in the flow state, Marlo, and you get distracted, and then you get back to work, it can take you on average about 23 minutes to get back into flow. The average person's checking email uh, once every six minutes. Uh, the average person receives about 50 notifications a day on their smartphones. The average person spends three hours in email and four hours looking at their phone each day. So when you add all of that up, not to mention instant messages through Microsoft Teams or Slack, we're actually getting distracted all day long. And so we're never cultivating the ability to get into that flow state for a long period of time, if at all. So doing away with those distractions, turning off those notifications, working in a space where you're not going to be physically interrupted by somebody. If you have self-control issues using apps like Freedom or BlockSite, to make sure that you can't actually access Twitter or your email or things like that. And just having the one browser screen open uh, or the one uh, application open to get your work done. Because I find it's, unless you're really intentional about these things, you will just find yourself, you know, once that moment of difficulty sets in, jumping into other things. Because from an evolutionary perspective, um, our brains are wired to conserve energy. Like that helped us survive in the African savanna all those thousands of years ago. Um, because we didn't know when our next meal would be and we needed to conserve that energy. And, and that shows up when we approach our work first thing in the morning. Let's just do the easy thing. Let's just uh, join you know, Mob Wars on Twitter, which I, you know, it might seem easy in the moment, but I don't think it's healthy for us. Um, and yeah, so that, that's, that's part of it as well. So really just getting started on that difficult piece of work. And you will find that by doing that, the more you do that, it's kind of like going to the gym or pursuing some other seemingly difficult activity, the more you do it, the more easier it becomes essentially. Absolutely. Yeah. And the boundaries. I mean, I think what you've described there, just the beautiful, healthy boundaries that are necessary for you to really be in charge of your own time, because all of those distractions, everything you mentioned really does make an impact. So you write the book, Time Rich. Mm -hmm. Who did you write the book for? How do we become time rich? I mean, in part four in the book, you're talking about you know, how to be time rich. Give us some, some greater knowledge there, Steve. Sure. So, I mean, the book was ultimately for both a corporate audience as well as an entrepreneurial audience, because I feel there are many things that individuals can do to become time rich, but depending on the organization they work in, they might find that they're, you, know, you fall to the lowest common denominator, which oftentimes is these processes and policies that slow things down at many organizations. So when it comes to becoming time rich, so as an individual, you know, many of us are carrying around what I call spare tires that slow us down. Um, so the, and, and that's essentially a, a visual uh, mnemonic. The T stands for task switching. So like I said, just switching between tasks all day long, 
that just exhausts us. Um, we spend no time in the flow state, but every time we switch tasks, our brain needs to recalibrate around the new context. And that's just like death by a thousand cuts. So come the end of the day, we're absolutely exhausted with very little to show for it. The why entire, yes. Saying yes to everything at the expense of saying yes to our own priorities. Little anecdote on that, uh, the resident work futurist at a software company Atlassian, um, he would have just back-to-back meetings all week long. He'd be invited to all these meetings and he'd feel obligated to say yes. But then he realized, look, I can't get my own work done. So I need to start saying no. I wonder what happens if I say no to these meeting invites. And it turned out that two-thirds of those meeting invites didn't come back. Um, he liked to call them sticks. He sent the stick, didn't come back. One-third came back saying, uh, hey, Mark, we really need you at this meeting. He called them boomerangs. So it turns out that most of our meeting invites are, in fact, sticks and not boomerangs. And by doing that, he saved himself 15 hours a week. So being more intentional about what you say yes to, what you say no to, and saying yes to things that are more likely uh, to be in line with your goals, your objectives, where you want to, to be. For residual work, so knowing when to stop, uh, you know, if I'm putting a sales presentation together and I do that in, say, three hours, it's very easy for me because it's comfortable and I'm conserving energy to spend another three hours just tweaking it, you know, the formatting, the wording, maybe changing the images rather than just saying, okay, this is good enough. Uh, let's move on to something else. And then the E, the path of least effort. Like I said, um, you know, we're, we're, we're wired to take the path of least effort. So by starting on the smallest possible unit of work, we can build momentum and keep going from there. So that's on an individual level. Um, now, there's other things to it. Like I mentioned, when we ran our six-hour workday experiment, prioritization, outsourcing automation, and so on. But I think it's important to touch on the organizational uh, context, which, uh, again, I've got a mnemonic for this. Not, not as pleasant as spare tires. So I wrote an article called um, Why Your Company Probably Runs Like Crap. And crap is the mnemonic in this one. Um, so consensus seeking. Rather than taking ownership of our decisions, taking action, if we make a mistake, learning from that, and moving forward fast with a, a more accurate worldview. Uh, we tend to just call meetings, outsource accountability. And as a result of that, not much gets done. Sometimes that's a byproduct of us, but oftentimes that's a byproduct of the organizations we work for who have this very big meeting culture. R in crap is for hyper-responsiveness. You know, a lot of organizations expect us to respond to emails, to Slack messages, to all sorts of stuff very, very quickly. And as a result of that, we're constantly glued to these tools, these apps that just destroy our productivity, destroy our ability to get into flow. And we're optimizing for the wrong things, which I think are more about showing the powers that be that we are online, that we are quote unquote working, but not really focusing. You know, it's, it, it's more a case of measuring time rather than attention, um, which I think is a throwback to the industrial revolution. You know, um, and I think that's an important thing just to touch on quickly is the way, you know, the nine to five workday, that goes back to 1937 when the Fair Labor Standards Act was ratified. And that was a byproduct of almost a century of lobbying by uh, unions um, during the Industrial Revolution. And, um, you know, during that time, you were on an assembly line, you were in a farm, you were in a coal mine. Work was quite linear. You know, the more time you spent doing it, uh, the more output there was. There was a straight line between hours and output, presence and productivity. But when we're doing cognitive work, uh, which is what most of us are doing today, like I said earlier, you can only do that for so many hours a day. What matters in that case isn't how many hours you spend at your desk. It's how focused you are on high value activities. Um, so slight tangent, but back to the crap mnemonic, um, A, availability. So 
we're expected to be available all hours of the day. I mean, you hit, hit the nail on the head earlier, boundaries, especially now where a lot of people are working remotely. The question I often get is, Steve, people are responding to emails all day long. They're working an extra two hours a day on average. Like, what do you suggest? And ultimately, you know, if you're not setting boundaries, people will set them for you. So making it clear to colleagues, to uh, superiors, if I can use that word, that, hey, look, after X o'clock, six o'clock, whatever it is, you know, that's family time, um, that's leisure time, that's health time, whatever it is, don't expect me to respond until the next day. And if you're working for an organization where they expect you to respond to emails at 10 p.m., maybe, maybe look, maybe there are parts of the year where there's some huge deal going through and you need to hustle hard, you know, that's fine. You know, work is a little bit like a sports season. You've got your regular season, your playoffs, your finals. Sometimes you got to go the extra mile. But if that is the way things are all the time, and that's infringing on your personal life, your family, your relationships, then you probably want to reconsider whether that's the kind of place uh, you actually want to work. And then lucky last uh, P in crap was for process paralysis. Um, so while organizations are small, there's a, a lot of trust, people know each other, you're moving quickly. But as organizations get bigger, as they find a product market fit, as they have a repeatable business model to deliver on, what often happens is we hire more people. Uh, we can't trust them like we trusted the first five or 10 or 15 or 20. We put in place a lot of processes and policies to make sure that we're delivering efficiently on that business model. Now, that's fine if the world doesn't change, um, but that's not the case. The world is changing very quickly. So what happens then, you could be efficient at delivering on the wrong business model. You know, the assembly line is great, providing the world doesn't change. Um, and in so many organizations, if you want to make small decisions, you know, you've got to get sign off from one, two, three people. Uh, you know, we've got delegations of authority set up where if I need to spend $500, again, I need to get sign off from the finance manager. And uh, a big one that Jeff Bezos talks about, you know, he wrote about this in his 1997 shareholder letter to, to Amazon shareholders was that in many organizations, we just don't delineate between what he calls type one and type two decisions. And um, type one decisions, big, hairy, audacious decisions, irreversible, costly. You don't want to make them or you don't want to make the wrong decisions with type one decisions. Um, but type two, inconsequential, small, reversible, you can learn from them and you can actually end up in a better place if you make those decisions quickly. Um, the problem is in, in a lot of organizations, particularly your more traditional ones, you know, banking, insurance, and whatnot, we tend to treat all decisions like type one decisions, even though most decisions are type two. So that not only slows organizations down, ensures that we spend a lot of time moving paper around in meetings, um, but it also just destroys employee morale. You know, if you want to engage people uh, you've got to give them a sense of autonomy and control. You've got to give them short feedback loops so they can feel like they're moving towards a goal. Otherwise, they just feel helpless. And that's part of the reason why 85% of the people, 85% of people around the world, according to Gallup, are either not engaged or actively disengaged at work, which is nothing short of a, of a tragedy uh, to my mind. Absolutely. No, and I love this. And, and, you know, a piece that I want to talk about too, in the Harvard Business Review, you put in um, a bit of a, um, like a task chart and it says, is your work worth $10 an hour or $10,000 an hour? You know, mm -hmm. just the fact that you have to kind of, you know, 
ask some of those key questions because are you making those $10 or uh, $10,000 mm-hmm. an hour tasks? Give us some insight into that too, because, you know, uh, Rachel Rogers talks about making broke ass decisions, right? You know, sometimes we're just making the wrong broke ass decision, or is it a $10,000 decision? Give us some insight into, you know, how you built that framework for us to look at. Sure. So that framework was um, inspired by uh, Perry Marshall, uh, a marketing author. But ultimately, that comes back to what we started the conversation talking about, you know, how people value their time. And oftentimes, you know, I've worked with the thousands of entrepreneurs by this stage um, in boot camps, workshops, um, accelerator programs and the like. And the question I often ask is, you know, I will show them that chart that you're referring to, which has $10 an hour tasks, 100, 1,000, 10,000, something to that effect. And I'll ask them, what percentage of your time are you spending on $10 an hour tasks, which is, you know, reconciling invoices in your accounting software, doing administrative tasks, things of that persuasion. And oftentimes they'll say about 50%. Like these are tasks that you could pay someone to do for you for literally $10 an hour. And if you consider your hourly rate $100 an hour, or if you're the founder of this company and you're trying to build a company that's worth millions, if not tens of millions of dollars, if not more, who knows, then why the hell are you spending your time on these $10 an hour tasks? Because arguably, if your hourly rate is $100 an hour, every hour you spend on these $10 an hour tasks is costing you $90 because you're not spending it on that higher value work. But it's probably even more than that because the opportunity cost of the value that you could create by actually applying cognition on higher value activities is much greater than simply reconciling invoices um, in your accounting software. And I think that's just such a key thing. And a lot of people will say, yeah, but we're an early stage company and we haven't got money to spend on things like that. I say you can't afford not to spend money on things like that (laughs) because your time is everything in the early stages. And if you're spending it on low value activities, well, you're very unlikely to succeed. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so as we're coming um, to the close of this episode, as you know, you know, we like to help people get to their one-year goal and do it in 90 days. What is, you know, Steve, from your experience and your knowledge, what is a tip or a pointer as you hear that offered? What's the recommendation that you have to get to your one-year goal and do it in 90 days? Uh, it's, it's a great question. Um, I mean, ultimately, from here, it always comes back to objectives and values alignment. So rather than focusing in on, you know, very specific hacks, I think being clear about why we've even selected that goal. Um, and is it a goal that, uh, the, you know, are we solving a big enough problem? Is it a goal that we truly care about? Is it a goal that our innate strengths, our skills, our experiences, our assets, our networks can help us reach because it's kind of like what Warren Buffett says about investing. You make money when you invest, not when you take your money out. So picking the right stock, you know, investing at the bottom of the market, all that type of stuff, it's the same with your goals. Um, so if you're picking the wrong goal, if you're picking something that you're just not in a, you know, predisposed to, to reach without a hell of a lot of difficulty, and if it's something that you don't truly believe in, you know, at the first sign of difficulty, you're probably going to quit or just pull back and, and distract yourself with other things. So I think that's, that's really where it, where it starts for me. So perhaps not a not a, hey, here's some hack you can do. I mean, <laughs> hack would be automate all the rudimentary tasks and right. I'll download a PDF I have on the TimeReach website where you can automate marketing, sales, customer service, and so on. But really coming back to that values alignment, that, that is key. Yeah. Yeah. Picking the goal that you actually want to achieve. And I think that is basically what you're saying. And 
And that's where we start is really understanding that value. Why do you want that goal? You know, what is that Mm -hmm. goal going to do for the bottom line? And it's that compound effect. So once that happens, it kind of lines up to other things. Okay. So we are coming to the close, Steve. We are so have another episode because this is just such phenomenal information that our audience is just loving. Where can we find you? How can we purchase your book, Time Rich? And um, how can we find you on social? Sure. Well, it's been fun conversation for me as well, Milo. I really appreciate you having me. Um, People can find the book over at timerichbook.com. So that's got links to Amazon and all the uh, online book merchants, Uh, but they can download the first chapter for free there. And they can also download, as I mentioned, a PDF with all sorts of time rich tools. I like to call them. It's about 30 pages long and it can help them get time back today just by automating some rudimentary activities. Um, And then they can find out more about me, my work, my socials, my other books, all that sort of stuff, my podcast over at steveglaveski.com, which is G-L-A-V-E-S-K-I. Steve, this is awesome. You can also visit our website at marlohiggins.com, where you can also add Steve to your circle of influence, connect to his resources and purchase his book. So Steve, what a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Marlo. We invite you to share this podcast with others and thank you in advance for your partnership. If you enjoyed this episode and it left you feeling inspired, share your biggest takeaway in our Perform and Get Paid community Facebook page. That's where we will engage and respond to your questions. This is Marlo Higgins, your host and Chief Inspirational Officer. Have an awesome rest of your day. Did you enjoy this podcast? If so, subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends. As your Chief Inspirational Officer, I coach passionate entrepreneurs like you to achieve complete confidence and clarity to reach your one-year goal in 90 days. Learn how you can get more done in less time with my number one proven formula for consistency and clarity. Simply go to go.marlohiggins.com to download. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next week on 22 Motivational Minutes with Marlo.